The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Mark 2, we'll read verses 1 through 12. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when, he, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose, and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed And they glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The story we have here in the Gospels. Let's pray briefly. God, you have given us this story in your word. You spoke it, uh, you accomplished it, and you now continue to speak uh, to us. We pray that we would listen with the eagerness of the crowds as you speak to us through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, this, this story of four friends lowering a paralytic through the roof to the feet of Jesus has to be one of my favorite stories in the gospel. And you can imagine them up on the roof, tearing the roof out to get their friend to the one person who could help him. But as exciting or perhaps engaging as the action of the story is, it's, it's also a text that begs some very important questions. In fact, Jesus deliberately begs these questions. His statements are phrased in a way to bring up important questions. And I think this story very dramatically demonstrates the arrival and the hope of the kingdom of God. But if we're going to understand the arrival and the hope of the kingdom of God like Jesus wants us to, and as he's presenting it here, we need to work slowly through this text to see how it unfolds and what questions Jesus is raising and answering as part of this story. Well, if we start at the beginning of the story, then you'll note that the story starts in verse 1 with the comment that Jesus is returning to Capernaum. And I think um, 
to really understand the energy behind this story, we have to look back to Mark chapter 1 to realize that this is not Jesus' first trip or visit to Capernaum. He was there in Mark chapter 1. And if we look back at Mark chapter 1, what we'd see is that uh, he's not only been there, he's come, he's taught the word. He went, uh, in verse 21, it says that uh, on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and he was teaching Here in chapter 2, he's preaching the word. He's already been there teaching. But he doesn't just teach. His teaching was accompanied with a number of miracles. We learn in in chapter 1, verse uh, 23, that um, he healed a man with an unclean spirit. Um, And that when he healed this man with an unclean spirit, there was this this expression with an unclean spirit says, Look, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And then Jesus cast out the, the uh, unclean spirit with a word. After that, we read down in verse 29 and following uh, that he went into to Simon Peter's house and healed his mother-in-law. And while he was there after healing Peter's mother-in-law, the whole town just brought all of their sick and their demon-possessed to the doorway. And all night long, Jesus spent healing and casting out demons. So when we talk about Jesus returning to Capernaum, he's returning to a city where he's already worked incredible miracles, where the whole city's already been bringing their sick to him, where his teaching has already been demonstrated to be teaching with power and authority that was confounding the scribes and amazing the people. So it shouldn't really be a surprise for us when when Mark 2 starts out, he returns to Capernaum and the word gets around, hey, Jesus is in that house that the house is immediately packed out, and the, and, and the scribes are there, the people are there, filling the house even to the doorway, because this is a guy who was just here, and we saw what he did last time, we heard what he was preaching and teaching last time, and we want to be here to see and hear what he teaches and does again. And so you can imagine, uh, you know, this gathering in the house, you could, you could sort of enter the mindset of these people. You know, last time we saw this guy, he was throwing out demons and healing people. Let's see what he does next. And we don't need to over-spiritualize things. These are crowds who had seen some incredible things, and they're just excited to see things again. But of course, they, they did also hear the powerful preaching of the Word. And they had heard a wor- the preaching of the Word in a sense that they said, we've never heard someone teach like this. So there has to be an excitement to see what Jesus is going to do, but also an anticipation to hear what he's going to say and the power of his words. But of course, uh, if that's maybe what the crowds were thinking, right in the center of it all, we hear that the scribes are also at the house. They're also sitting listening to Jesus. And I think we pretty, pretty quickly pick up from the story that the scribes are there with a much more critical eye. They're there with a much more skeptical purpose. They want to know, okay, you can do some miracles and you may be a teacher with power, but are you really orthodox? Are you really someone who can be trusted? Where are you coming from? And so you have this mix of the crowds and their anticipation and excitement and the scribes and their critical skepticism. And you can imagine sort of the tension uh, and the air and the atmosphere as Jesus is teaching in this house. But in the midst of this atmosphere, excitement, tension, critical skepticism, uh, waiting to see what Jesus is going to do, the story, the story is driven by four friends. Four friends who have a persistent faith, who want to see their friend walk again. 
And you can imagine these four friends. I wonder what, what went through their mind or what the scene looked like when they heard that Jesus was back in town again. Here's the guy who'd been healing many. He's back in town. Quick, let's get our friend onto the mat and let's carry him to see Jesus because he's the guy who can help him walk again. But you know, if, if you can imagine, um, what would it look like to hurry with a paralyzed man carried on a mat? If you've ever tried to carry uh, a, a grown-up, especially one on, on a mat that's probably not firm, you're not going to be moving too fast. You can imagine these four men trying to, to lug their friend across town and get to where Jesus is, and it's no wonder by the time they've loaded their friend up and carried him across town that the crowds have already packed the house out. And so even as they've hurried in their haste, they can't get anywhere near Jesus. They can't even get in the door when they get there. And I'm always wondering in the course of these stories what's going on in the minds of the characters. I wonder what's going on in the minds of these four friends when they've loaded up this friend, carried him across town on the mat, and they show up and they can't even get close to Jesus. What do they think? Was Was their initial response discouragement? Were they, were they thinking, you know, we've just done all of this, now, now we can't even get him to Jesus? Were they despairing? Did half of them want to quit and the other half wanted to keep trying and there was a debate about what to do? You know, what, what, what did that conversation look like? And the, the, text, uh, the text doesn't give us a, a window into that, but it does give us the, the story that whatever their initial response, they make the decision that they're going up on the roof and they're going to break down into this house through the roof. Now, um, we've all heard this story in Sunday school, and, and maybe, maybe you've seen like sort of a flanograph that's, you know, you picture the house, and breaking through the roof of the house in Sunday school is never very dramatic. But, but there's no reason to suppose that this was not a very dramatic thing. And uh, if you read the parallel text in Luke, it talks about removing tiles, and so I think as a, as, a, as a child, I'm sort of picturing like your Armstrong ceiling tiles. You know, you just lift up a tile and move it over and drop the guy down. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. Um, from what we know about the construction of houses in the area, there's at least four layers to a roof of a house. You're going to start out with, with wooden beams every two or three feet going one direction across the roof. And then you're going to be laying branches perpendicular to that to form the structure of the roof. And then on top of that, you're going to be adding branches and and thistle and sort of loose debris. And then you're going to be putting mud over top of that to to make it rain tight. And what most commentators think, there's some puzzlement over what tiles are, but we've actually found these sort of square, um, uh, square sections of mud that are baked first, and then they're carried up on the roof and set in place as this sort of watertight structure. And so... Um, most people think it's these, it's these sections of baked mud that the, the friends are trying to drag back or remove and then they have to clear the debris in order to get this, this man down to the feet of Jesus. And so you can imagine, I mean, right below, here's Jesus and the scribes, probably the most revered people in the community. The scribes and the miracle worker We really want this guy to help us, and so we're going to start by raining dirt and sticks down on their heads, and you think about the environment of what's going on here. Maybe you think about, you know, did did these four friends know whose house this was? This is is damage to property that's going to have to be fixed. You know, did they they know these guys, or were they just like, oh, we'll take care of that later? Um, We we don't have all of these these, uh, 
questions answered, but we do have the picture. Here's dirt, leaves, branches raining down on the scribes of the community and on Jesus as these friends pursue uh, getting their, their uh, friend to Jesus. And, you know, when, when I think about that, I think, you know, where would I have been? Would, would I have been looking down at my friend saying, well, you know, Simon, the door's packed out. I guess it wasn't God's will that you get healed today uh, and, and, and walk away. No, the friends persist in the hope of bringing their friend to Jesus. And after digging through, they lower him to the ground and bring him right to the faith, uh, right to the feet of, of the Savior. And, and I think it's worth pausing just, just for a minute. Um, pause for a minute and consider the picture of the faith of these four friends. They're facing any obstacle. They're doing anything they need to do. They are willing to go through any effort. Why? to get to the face of Jesus. And what is it that would motivate this all-out effort to get someone to the feet of Jesus? It's a complete dependence, a, a total hope that says this man who's in this house is our one hope. He is the one we completely depend upon. And apart from him, there's no other hope. If there were, you know, three miracle workers in town, you're not going to go to this effort. It's the faith that this man can do it, and he's the only man who can do it, and so we're going to face any obstacle to get to his feet. Now, if you think about, you just cast your mind over the Gospels for a minute, and think about faith, and the faith of the people that Jesus particularly praises uh, in the Gospels. And repeatedly, it's faith of men and women who, who com- express an absolute trust a single-minded hope in the work of Jesus. Maybe you think of, maybe you think of the centurion, the centurion uh, who, whose uh, servant is ill, and when Jesus is going to come and heal him, he sends word and says he is not even worthy for Jesus to come under his roof. But that doesn't matter, because he knows that Jesus has authority over every illness and every demon to the same extent that the centurion has a authority over a soldier. And he says, Jesus, just say a word and he will be healed. So don't even bother coming to my house. You don't need to bother because I know a single word will heal my sick servant. And Jesus marvels saying, I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. Or maybe you think of the blind Bartimaeus who ignores the condemnations of everyone around him to continue to cry out at the top of his lungs, Jesus, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And over and over he begs with a, with a heartfelt uh, cry that says, my only hope is in Jesus, so Jesus, have mercy on me. It's a complete and total trust on Jesus alone for our healing, for mercy, for salvation. That's what these four friends are expressing this complete dependence upon Christ. And I think if I just pause for a moment to consider this faith, I think how easily, how easily my own faith falters. How I pray for something perhaps once or twice and it doesn't come, and I wonder if God's really going to answer or if it's, if it's useless. Life takes a painful turn and I'm wondering all of a sudden if God really cares and if all of these things I've thought about uh, uh, and, and believe, what, you know, where are they? And depression and worry, anxiety, frustration, they overwhelm our hearts so easily. But these four friends are not focused on themselves and their problems. They're focused on Jesus and the hope that he brings. And so by taking their eyes off the problems, like 
getting to a roof and breaking someone's property and dropping a guy on the heads of the scribes. And you take your eyes off the problems and fix your eyes on Jesus and faith. The faith, this absolute dependence is what we see in these friends. It's an encouragement to us to take our eyes off whatever is facing us and fix them fully, completely on the one who does give us hope, who is worthy of our dependence, on Jesus, whose feet we need to get to. And I pray that we would have this single-focused view, this absolute faith that's determined as the faith of these friends. Well, these friends get their, 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 their paralytic to the feet of Jesus. And as inspiring as their faith is, it's really once the paralytic gets to Jesus' feet that the really interesting questions start to come up. I'm interested in the action and breaking roofs and all of that, but it's once the paralytic gets to Jesus that this passage really starts to unfold in the questions that are significant. And if you think about it, here are these four friends. They've dropped the bed at the feet of Jesus, and the simplest thing in the world would have been for Jesus to look at that man and say, son, get up and walk. I mean, that's what everyone was waiting for, right? That, that's, that's what the four friends brought him there to do. That's why the paralytic was there. Son, take up your bed and walk. It would have been so easy. That's what the crowds wanted too. They're there to see a healing miracle. You say, son, get up and walk, and you avoid any sticky issues with the scribes too. The scribes know he can heal. They're not going to have any debate over a man who heals someone. And so it, it would have been perfectly straightforward, perfectly understandable, was what everyone was looking for Jesus to say. And instead, Jesus has to go and stir the pot and say, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now why would Jesus say this? I mean, you think through the parties there. The crowds have to be saying, What? Your sins are forgiven? What good is that going to do him? Think about the paralytic and his four friends. We've just gotten through some destroyed property all the way across town to get to Jesus to be healed, and he says, your sins are forgiven? And you know, part of us is going to be saying, well, well, great, yeah, I'm sure I'm a sinner, but I was really hoping to walk. And the scribes, the scribes don't even need to be paying close attention for their radar to be on this one, and immediately they jump all over it. They say, this is blasphemy. No one can forgive sins but God. So, you know, Jesus, you just crossed the line and got yourself into trouble. So why is it that Jesus says that the tension in the room had to be tangible? Everybody in that room, from every perspective, had to be saying, what in the world did he just say, and why did he say it? Well, that, of course, is exactly why Jesus said it. Because it forced every person in the room to say, why in the world would he say that? Jesus chose his words on purpose. And it's these words that could communicate to each of the parties in the room what it meant for Jesus to arrive there and what it meant for the kingdom of God to be coming. You know, think, think through this here for a second. Back in, in Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15, as Jesus arrives on the scene and we get the beginning of his ministry, we're told that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, saying, and what does he say? What's Jesus here to announce? He's here to announce that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so everything that we watch Jesus do and everything we hear Jesus say has to be heard and seen from this lens, that he's here announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. 
okay, what is the kingdom of God? If Jesus is here announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God, it's important for us to know what that is. The arrival of the kingdom of God, as we look through Scripture and hear Jesus proclaim this, the arrival of the kingdom of God is the arrival of the final and full rule or kingship of God over his people. The arrival of the kingdom of God is the arrival of the active rule of God. It's the arrival of the the realm in which his will is done. And if you think about the arrival of the active rule of God where his will is done, think about the implications of that. A place, a rule in which God's will is done. And suddenly you realize what the arrival of the kingdom of God means, means the reversal and the pulling back of sin and its curse, death and all of its consequences. The arrival of the kingdom of God can mean nothing less than that sin and its curse and all of the things that happen that are not God's will are going to be reversed and pulled back. Because you can't have the active rule of God with his will perfectly done in sin and death running amok in the midst. And so here is Jesus ready to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God where his will and his power is actively ruling and directing all things. But see, each party in this story, the crowds, the scribes, and the paralytic and his friend, were all in danger of missing the significance of who Jesus was and what it meant when he said the kingdom of God is here. And so I want to look at each of these parties and see where they were in danger of missing who Jesus was and how these words bring them back to Jesus' key points. Think about the crowds first. What are the crowds doing? The crowds, the crowds are there to be wowed by amazing miracles. They've seen some incredible things. But the miracles aren't the kingdom of itself. They're the effects of the kingdom. The kingdom isn't just the working of miracles. The miracles were the signs that the kingdom was here. And so if the crowds are here focused on miracles, they're focused on the wrong thing. And think about it this way. If the arrival of the kingdom of God means the reversal of the curse and the consequences for sin, then of course the arrival of the kingdom of God includes the healing of sickness. Sickness and death are some of the consequences of sin and its curse. And so if Jesus is here to, to, to heal sin and the curse and to pull back its consequences and all of the results of sin then of course that's going to mean healing of sickness and diseases and casting out of demons and, and rising from the dead. Because those are all the consequences his, his arrival will deal with. It will mean that. But of course, the sick are healed precisely because the kingdom of God is first there to deal with sin and its effects. Jesus is not here simply to heal some people. If you think about it this way, can you imagine, imagine for a second that Jesus is not here to bring the kingdom of God and to repeal back the curse on sin. He's just here to heal people. Well, what would that mean? Sure, Jesus could come and heal a paralytic. What good would that do? The paralytic could walk for a few years. He'd also suffer continuing uh, effects of sickness, disease, and he would die. If the curse and sin and death are not solved, then a healing only does a very small and temporary thing. The kingdom of God is here to strike at the heart of the problem. It's here to strike at sin itself. 
And so the miracles are just the bold flashing arrows pointing to what's actually happening. The Son of God has come to strike a death blow to sin, to forgive sinners and reconcile them to God, to repeal the curse, and so bring about God's perfect rule with his people and his creation. That's the great central power and the joy of his coming and the coming of his kingdom. It's to deal with sin and the fall and the curse. And if you deal with that, then you deal with sickness, disease, death, and all of its consequences. And so when Jesus turns the attention of the crowds away from healing a man's legs to say your sins are forgiven, he's showing the crowds what the central concern of the arrival of the kingdom of God is. The arrival of the kingdom of God first and foremost means sin is going to be dealt with. Sin is going to be forgiven. Sinful men will be reconciled to God as his rule is enacted. And that will then have all of these consequences. What about the paralytic? What about the paralytic? The paralytic was looking for the ability to walk. If the crowds were looking to be wowed by miracles and needed to be reminded that Jesus was preaching the forgiveness of sins as the core of the arrival of the kingdom, the paralytic was looking for the ability to walk. And the arrival of the kingdom of God certainly does include the healing of sickness. Certainly, this man's inability to walk is something that does come about as the result of the fact that there is sin in the world and the world has fallen. And so the arrival of the kingdom of God will deal with that. Jesus says so himself in Luke chapter 4. You know, in, Luke, in Luke's parallel account of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus shows up and quotes from Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus said, setting prisoners free, healing the blind, coming to the rescue those who are oppressed. That was part of what the arrival of the kingdom meant. And so the paralytic's looking in the right place. If the paralytic wants to be healed, he's looking to the right person. But he needs to know that the healing is the result of Jesus bringing the kingdom of God, not the central focus of him uh, bringing the kingdom of God. This paralytic needed to know what Jesus preached from the beginning. The arrival of the kingdom of God demands that everyone repent, because whether each of us is willing to admit it or not, our deepest need, no matter what struggle we have in life, our deepest need is to have our sin forgiven and our broken relationship with God restored. Whatever, whatever suffering, sickness, loss we are facing, have faced, or will face, none of it reaches the level of need as our sin and our separation from God. And so the paralytic needs to have the eyes of his heart turned to his deepest need. As I said, if Jesus had merely healed the paralytic and never offered the forgiveness of sins, It may have given him some conveniences for a few years, but it would not have helped him in the long run. And so the paralytic needs to know that the kingdom of God is good news. It's real hope because it arrives to deal with all suffering, all sin, all rebellion, all death at its root, sin and the curse. And so Jesus, with this statement, turns this man's focus from his legs to his heart where real healing was needed. And it's only when this man sees that the healing of his legs and his heart 
are both the result of Jesus bringing the kingdom of God and his active rule to pull back sin and its curses. Only then can this paralytic have true hope. You know, it's so easy for us, so easy for us to lose the joy of knowing Christ because we so easily focus on certain desires or demands or expectations that we have for God or for life with God. And so, you know, we say, God, you know, um, I, I know you are God, and so I would like my life to look like this. Or, God, I know you're God, so I would like this to happen. Or, God, I know you're my Savior, so you need to save me from X in my life. And we lose sight of the fact that our need, our deepest need, is not for this to happen in our life or that to happen in our life. Our deepest need is for God's forgiveness, God's forgiveness of our sin, because that strikes at the core of who we are. Our deepest need is for reconciliation with God, our creator and our king. Our deepest need is to have our rebellion forgiven. And if we lose sight of how desperate this need is, if we lose sight of what our deepest need is, then it's no surprise that we might lose some of the joy of knowing Christ, because we'll lose sight of how mind-blowing it is that God would become man in order to forgive our sins, save us from death, and reconcile us to himself. The 19th century bishop J.C. Ryle put it so well. He, he was commenting on this story in Mark chapter 2, and he said this. He said, let us think for a moment how great a blessing it is that Jesus is our great high priest, that we know where to go for absolution for our sins. He says, we must have a priest and a sacrifice between ourselves and God. Our conscience demands an atonement for our sins. We know we need atonement. God's holiness makes this atonement absolutely necessary. Without an atoning priest, there can be no peace of soul for any of us. But Jesus Christ is the very priest that we need, with might to forgive and pardon tender-hearted in willingness to save. Have we known the Lord Jesus as our high priest? May we never rest till the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we have sat at the feet of Jesus and heard his voice saying to each of us, Son, your sins are forgiven. What a great reminder of our deepest need of a high priest who will say to us, Son, your sins are forgiven. So the paralytic needed his eyes turned to his deepest need, and we need our eyes turned back to our deepest need. Well, if the crowds needed their eyes turned inward, if the paralytic needed his eyes turned towards his heart, consider finally the scribes. The scribes were critical of this person, Jesus, who he was, what he was claiming, what he was teaching. And Jesus' statement here deliberately forces the scribes to consider the key issue. Because the scribes are right. God is the only one who can forgive sins. No one can forgive sins but God. But of course, no one but God can heal a paralytic with a word. No one but God can speak a word and heal every disease in town. No one but God can have a demon come up and say, you are the Holy One of God, and he respond and say, be quiet and leave and have that demon obey. See, the incredible thing here is not that Jesus said your sins are forgiven, but that the scribes had refused to believe the demonstration of Jesus' power again and again and again and again all throughout their city. 
Jesus had demonstrated his divinity with his healing and with his teaching with power. And yet the scribes refused to acknowledge that and sat back with skepticism. And so Jesus, with one brief sentence, forces the scribes to stop sitting back with skepticism at the demonstration of God's power and the arrival of his kingdom. If the kingdom is here, if God is here among us, then God himself is here to deal with sin. And so Jesus brings that right to the front of the discussion with his remarkable statement, your sins are forgiven. The scribes' eyes need to be turned to the real issue. God is here. And this statement does that. And so Jesus here reorients and challenges each party's thinking with this statement. The crowds, the paralytic, and the scribes are forced to deal with who Jesus was and what the kingdom is, the arrival of the active rule and power of God to deal with sin at its core. But of course, Jesus doesn't leave things there. He doesn't say, well, son, your sins are forgiven and I hope you know what that means and walk away. He says, son, your sins are forgiven, which is a big, bold arrow pointing to the fact that the kingdom of God is here and we can be reconciled to God. Our deepest need is being met. But of course, if the kingdom of God is here and this curse and its consequences are being dealt with, then healing healing of a paralytic's leg is a perfectly legitimate follow-up and a perfectly natural follow-up. And so Jesus, Jesus then goes on to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. I don't want to miss, I don't want to miss a very important verse in verse 9. Jesus does tell the paralytic to rise and walk. He does heal his legs as well. But know what he says in verse 9, because verse 9 brings everything to, uh, to, the, to the front and brings it to a conclusion. In verse 9 he says, Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? See what Jesus is saying. He's saying, well, these aren't just two random things that I happen to be able to do. He's saying, son, your sins are forgiven, and rise, take up your bed, and walk are actually accomplishing the same thing. Which is easier, he says. I could say, son, your sins are forgiven. I could say, you know, paralytic, take up your bed and walk. Which is easier? They're accomplishing the same thing. How? How? What does Jesus mean that, son, your sins are forgiven, and take up your bed and walk are accomplishing the exact same thing? Because in our minds, these are still two separate events, two separate things. And this is where our minds can get muddled. But I think if we've followed the story, what we should be seeing is that get up and walk and your sins are forgiven both mean that the kingdom of God has arrived in Jesus Christ. And the arrival of the kingdom of God means that sin and all of its consequences are here to be dealt with in this person, this son of God. And so Jesus, whether he says, Take up your bed and walk, or your sins are forgiven. Either way, Jesus is saying the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. God's active rule to deal with sin and all of its consequences is here in me. And so whether I say, take up your bed and walk, because sin and all of its consequences of suffering and sickness are dealt with and and solved in me, or whether I say, son, your sins are forgiven, because the core of sin and the separation from God are dealt with in me, 
They're both pointing to the same reality. The kingdom of God is here and has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. The offer of the gospel is no mere offer that, hey, we can go to heaven instead of hell if we just believe God. The good news of the gospel is an invitation to a completely healed new reality, or we should say renewed reality. It's a transference from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son, where he is actively ruling, actively forgiving, healing sin, and therefore resolving every consequence of sin that has marred his creation. There's a glorious picture. The Son of God has arrived to bring the kingdom of God. It's happened. God's active rule has begun. And Jesus Christ, incarnation, death, and resurrection. And I think perhaps the confusing thing is that the active rule of the kingdom of God has not been completely worked out yet. It's the decisive blow has been dealt to sin and all of its consequences. Jesus has arrived, died, and risen again. The kingdom has come and the decisive victory has been won. But we're still waiting for this, this Son of God to come again and complete in the fullness all of this, this resolution that we're waiting for. But Jesus' point is helpful for us. You know, if you think about it, think about it this way. How many times do we go to God with a particular request? Maybe we're frustrated or we're, we're despairing that God hasn't answered, answered it. How many times do we struggle to bear patiently with trials or sufferings in life? And maybe, maybe we might hear ourselves say, well, I know God's dealt with my sin, but I sure wish he'd deal with my suffering. I know God's forgiven my sin, but I sure wish he would solve this conflict. I know God's forgiven my sin, but I sure wish that he would heal my cancer. And fill in whatever we want to in the blank. But you hear what Jesus is saying? Your sins are forgiven. It's pointing to the same reality as get up and walk. Brothers and sisters, if you have heard Jesus say your sins are forgiven, you've heard Jesus say, all you need to know and whatever suffering or trial you're experiencing. Maybe you could hear Jesus say, which is easier? Say your sins are forgiven or your family conflict will be resolved. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or your chronic pain will be healed? Because if the kingdom of God has broken in with Jesus Christ, if we have faith in the one who died and rose again, then the reversal of all the effects of the fall are solved And we're now just waiting for them to be fully worked out. And maybe think about it this way. Think about the analogy this way. Here's the paralytic lying on his mat at the feet of Jesus. If Jesus would have just said to him, son, get up and walk, he would have been healed of his paralysis at least 60 seconds sooner. He would have had at least another minute where he was walking and didn't have to wonder what Jesus was doing. You know, maybe... Maybe some of us are in that period between hearing Jesus say your sins are forgiven and the, and the effect of the curse that we're waiting to be solved, whether it be our disease or our conflict or something else. But, in, but if the paralytic, so let's say Jesus had come to him and said, son, get up and walk, and he had never said your sins are forgiven, think what the paralytic would have missed. Yes, he'd be walking, but he would have missed Jesus' opportunity to point him to the heart reality that your sins are forgiven, your life is reconciled to God. 
perhaps in the scope of eternity, God is saying to us, your sins are forgiven and it's going to be six years or 60 years until the sickness or the pain or the conflict is worked out. But perhaps if, if Jesus had not given us that weight, we would have missed the whole point. But here in this passage, Jesus is reminding us that if the Son of God has come, if the kingdom is here, he has come to dealt with sin, the curse, and all of its consequences. That is the hope of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not concerned with everything being solved this instant. The kingdom of God is concerned with certain hope, with certain hope that every suffering and consequence of sin, death, and judgment has been dealt the decisive blow and will soon be completely solved when Christ returns. See, this is the glorious and comprehensive hope we have of entrusting ourselves to Christ and the life he offers in God's kingdom. Jesus Christ has dealt with sin and all of its consequences. This is a comprehensive, glorious hope. We know its reality. It has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. And now we just, as Paul said, wait by faith, though we do not see everything worked out now. We wait by faith, knowing it has been accomplished in Christ. What a hope we have to rest in. If that's the hope we have to rest in, then we have to finish by looking briefly at verse 12. Look briefly at verse 12. The paralytic picks up his bed and walks out before the whole crowd. And the response is amazement and giving great glory to God. You know, you and I have seen this paralytic get up and walk. His limbs have been healed and his soul has been healed. If this is God's word to you and me, then the retelling of this story is God's word retelling this amazing miracle. And hearing it in God's word is hearing God testify, this is what I have done. We've seen this. We've heard what God has done here. So shouldn't we respond in the same way as these other witnesses of God's power? How can we respond in any other way but fresh amazement at who God is and what he has done? But you know, in the end, we're not so much like the crowds who are watching this paralytic get up and walk out. We're much more like the paralytic himself because we've heard Jesus say to us, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And so just like the paralytic, we ought to go walking, leaping, carrying our broken beds, praising God for his kingdom has come, his power has worked in our lives, and he deserves all the glory. Thanks be to God for the arrival of his kingdom, which has given us forgiveness of sins and decisively dealt with every other need we have as broken creatures. Let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to inaugurate, to bring, to bring the kingdom of God and to deal with sin and all of its consequences. I pray that it would be our great hope and that we would delight, that we would sing, leap, dance, and glorify God with all the amazement and joy of this paralytic when we realize what he has done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.